This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This is the last entry for 2022 in this podcast feed, and I apologize for my voice. I'm battling a bit of a cold. I'm negative for COVID so far, but uh, still not the best thing you want to really experience in the last few days of the year, but here we are. I wanted to share some thoughts that I published elsewhere on my website, The Post-Evangelical Post. If you don't subscribe to that, uh, Exvangelical is a production of The Post-Evangelical Post. It is my Substack publication uh, where I publish all these episodes as well as different parts of my writing. And I capped off this year by writing an entry that I wanted to share here on the feed itself. And that entry was part of uh, one vertical on the website, which is called Shaped by Tools, which is a reference to Marshall McLuhan, who wrote that first we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. He was one of the uh, founding academics in regards to the, the area of media studies, and uh, his influence is still felt today. You can actually go back into the 2022 archives here and hear an interview that I did with an author who wrote a book about McLuhan's spirituality. However, I did want to share this essay uh, that was called The Vibe Shift That Was Foretold Came and Twitter Did Not Survive It. Those of you who've listened to the show for several years may know that I was quite active at one point on Twitter. Um, and I wanted to share, again, this uh, this, feeds, this feature. So I'll just go right into it. Back in February, a time that feels much farther away than a mere 10, month, 10 months ago, The Cut published an essay called A Vibe Shift is Coming. Will any of us survive it? It was a piece meant to get people talking, and it did. It featured a lot of coast-centric media bubble transpotting talk mingled with pandemic lockdown introspection. But some of it resonated further, that something was in the air, ready to change the zeitgeist. I'll contend that the shift was about social media itself, but first, here's a quote from Sean Monahan, who was quoted at length in the original piece. Quote, I feel like the tra trajectory of the 2010s has been exhausted in a lot of ways. The culture war topic no longer seems quite as interesting to people. Social media isn't a place where you can be as creative anymore. All the angles are figured out. Younger people are less interested in 
things like quote-unquote cancel culture. These were kind of like the big pillars we used to navigate pop culture in the 2010s. And we had the rise of all these world-spanning like Sauron-esque tech platforms that literally have presences on every continent. People want to make things personal again. End quote. A couple months after this piece was published, Elon Musk made his his bid to purchase Twitter, based on vibes only and no due diligence. Following that, the early deserters left the platform. Following that, Elon tried to back out of the deal. Following that, Twitter countersued to enforce the deal. Following that, Elon feared a loss in court and closed the deal in October. Following that, he has brought rapid and frantic change to to the service and the company, reducing staff via layoffs and quote-unquote hardcore ultimatums, reinstating Trump's account via Twitter poll, and offering so-called general amnesty to banned accounts, including those held by neo-Nazis. After Musk's Twitter acquisition closed in October, another swath of folks deleted their accounts or abandoned them. My own modest follower count has fallen by about 400 since then. Professional journalists and headline writers were quick to write obituaries for social media writ large. At Vice, Edward Angueso Jr., I apologize if I mispronounce that name, offered an interesting analysis under the clickbait headline, Social Media is Dead, which highlighted that users are gravitating towards networks that emphasize the one-to-many broadcast model. Quote, Instead, we're getting YouTube, TikTok, Twitch, and an endless number of streaming platforms that replace the more rhizomatic structure of polydirectional conversation with something essentially unidirectional, a broadcast model, which sees so-called mutuals replaced by a creator and their audience. End quote. There's also been plenty of navel-gazing about Twitter's value or lack thereof from high-profile journalists working in major outlets. Rebecca Jennings at Vox wrote about the folks who rely on Twitter for work, exposure, for pleasure, for passion. Charlie Warzel at The Atlantic wrote about how in the media, a whole micro-generation of younger journalists owe part of their career to the way that Twitter collapses social networks and allows people to find new and interesting voices. But Musk's actions at Twitter and on the platform itself feel like private sector Trumpism, a regime run solely on personality and its concomitant cult. We've read this script before. A powerful man becomes the permanent main character of Twitter, his inner circle becoming enablers and his online audience hangers-on acting as a cadre of digital enforcers, using shit-posting as apologetics. Musk even uses the same culture war, tri- culture war tactics as Trump to goose engagement, and has the same unpredictable chaos-slash-unquestionable loyalty management methods Trump became infamous for. And it has not gone unnoticed. On December 11th, Musk tweeted this, quote, my pronouns are prosecute slash Fauci. Warzel, mentioned above, put it plainly in his Atlantic article titled, Elon Musk is a far-right activist. Quote, in five words, Musk manages to mock trans- transgender and non-binary people, signal his disdain for public health officials, and send up a flare to far-right shitposters and trolls. Two days later, Gideon Lickfield at Wired remarked on the Trumpification of Elon Musk 
and how media coverage fell back into Trump-era patterns. Quote, News coverage of what Musk is doing at Twitter betrays another trope of the Trump years. There's a large category of stories that report with a kind of ghoulish delight on moves that will surely, surely sink the platform in short order, like alienating advertisers and influential users. Meanwhile, there's a drumbeat of pieces from right-wing outlets that just as willfully ignore Musk's worst behaviors to argue that his slash-and-burn tactics are literally the only way to rid Twitter of excess bureaucracy and make it profitable, as if it were such a pit of vipers as has never been seen in the annals of corporate management. It's tiring, and it's got lots of people reconsidering how much time to invest in these platforms. One such essay was published by Micah J. Murray on Substack. I recommend the entire thing, which I've linked on the essay, on my own Substack. But this is the part that resonates the most for me. Quote, What we are experiencing is not an accidental state of decay or the inevitable cost of doing business online. The internet in which we exist was engineered to extract money from us at the cost of our souls. The richest men in the world have hired some of the best engineers and scientists in the world to build machines which consume our time, attention, and creative energy to produce valuable data sets and advertising streams and profit for shareholders. I don't need to tell you how it works. You probably know. But I need to remind myself. The reason it feels soul-crushing is because it was designed to be soul-crushing. Because anger and fear and greed and ego make the machine run better keep you there scrolling through endless content and throwing words into the void in hopes of human connection. Because crushed, sh crushed souls yield more profit for the companies. End quote. This is the vibe shift that was foretold. We know with ever-increasing clarity that the promise of social media is not worth the peril for most of us. These changes have been brewing for years, the very introduction of Jenny O'Dell's 2019 opus, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, speaks to this. Quote, We know that we live in complex times that demand complex thoughts and conversation, and those in turn demand the very time and space that is nowhere to be found. The convenience of limitless connectivity has neatly paved over the nuances of in-person conversation, cutting away so much information and context in the process. In an endless cycle where communication is stunted and time is money, there are few moments to slip away and fewer ways to find each other. Given how poorly art survives in a system that only values the bottom line, the stakes are cultural as well. With the tastes of neoliberal techno-manifest destiny and the culture of Trump have in common is impatience with anything nuanced, poetic, or less than obvious. Such nothings so-called, cannot be tolerated because they cannot be used or appropriated and provide no deliverables. How to Do Nothing is part of a genre of books that challenges the effects of media and technology that includes Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, Johan Hari's Stolen Focus, and a host of others. These books, focused on the effects of media and technology on individuals, are supplemented by books about media and tech on society. Those include books like Tim Wong's Subprime Attention Crisis, Tim Wu's Attention Merchants, Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism, Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction, 
Ben Tarnas Speculative, inter Internet for the People, and so many more. But lately, it is Trisha Hersey's recent book, Rest is a Resistance, that speaks to this same impulse to question the entire endeavor we find ourselves in. Hersey writes, quote, But there is always an incomplete understanding when you are engaging on social media because it has been created to be an extension of capitalism. The designers of the platforms want us there all day scrolling, spending money, and absorbing mes messages in a fast-paced, disconnected manner. To truly grasp the heart of the messages, we will have to put down our phones and laptops and rest. We will have to take an intense look at the ways in which grind culture has traumatized us and then begin the lifelong process of healing from this trauma. This work is about more than simply naps and sleep. It is a full unraveling from the grips of our toxic understanding of our self-worth as divine human beings. Grieving in this culture is not done and is seen as a waste of time because grieving is a powerful place of reverence and liberation. A grieving person is a healed person. Can you guess why our culture does not want a healed person in it? You are worthy of rest. We don't have to earn rest. Rest is not a luxury, a privilege, or a bonus we must wait for once we are burned out. When we can begin to tap into the deep vessel of who we truly are, so many things would end about oppression. I believe the, the powers that be don't want us rested because they know that if we rest enough, we are going to figure out what is really happening and overturn the entire system. Exhaustion keeps us numb, keeps us zombie-like, and keeps us on their clock. Somehow, amid the rapid decline of both the business and culture of Twitter, Elon Musk has quickly and effectively destroyed the mythology surrounding both himself and social media more broadly, and Twitter in particular. Through his crassness and played-out culture war posting, he has done more to disabuse faith in both himself and the system that has so richly rewarded him than anything else we might have already imagined. I've seen all this before. I've lived it. You probably have too. And refusing to participate in the same sort of entrenchment, entrenchment is a valid form of response that more and more people are choosing this time around. A bevy of Bartleby's responding, I would prefer not to. Ginny O'Dell writes again in How to Do Nothing, quote, In Diogenes, Bartleby, and Thoreau, we see how discipline involves strict alignment with one's own, quote, laws over and against prevailing laws and, or habits, but, but successful collective refusals enact a second-order level of discipline and training in which individuals align with each other to form flexible structures of agreement that can hold open the space of refusal. This collective alignment emerges as a product of intense individual self-discipline, like a crowd of Thoreaus refusing in tandem. In so doing, the, quote, third space, not of retreat, but of refusal, boycott, and sabotage, can become a spectacle of noncompliance that registers on the larger scale of the public. I don't think social media is dying. It may perhaps be changing, or perhaps the way in, in which so many of us relate to these services is what's really changing. My heyday as a poster 
was around 2016 to 2019, when the exvangelical hashtag was becoming more of a known quantity on Twitter. Then in 2019, a personal private loss followed by a public drama forced me to reevaluate how I use these platforms myself. And I'll be clear, drama is a very poor representation of what actually occurs online when real trauma and, con- and hurt can happen, but at the same time, it also feels like the most apt description of what happens. After that experience, I lost my appetite for confrontational dunk tweets or punching up, and I set a boundary against encouraging or participating in this so-called online drama. I would still post, but I am generally more measured and certainly less prolific. But this latest chapter on Twitter has cast things in starkest, bleakest terms. When the world's second richest man kicks up drama for no reason, you start to question who has anything to gain from any of this. I don't know what the next step in social media's evolution will be. The more successful companies like Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube have shown that they are resilient and are capable of perpetuating themselves and encouraging the use of their particular platforms. Yet no platform has found a way to help their most successful creators, or even their most sincere creators, avoid burnout. Every algorithm dictates that you must post or perish. And this is what must be resisted whether it's through the rubric of rest is resistance, as Trisha Hersey teaches us, or time well spent, the term attributed to Tristan Harris, or E.F. Schumacher's concept of enoughness, enoughness or appropriate technology. There, whatever rubric you use, there is a growing discontent and a growing desire to do something else with this anger than to endlessly post. Decades of grievance devolve into dead ends. We know this path. It's been explored at length in conservative media. And we can choose to walk another. This particular spell is broken. The vibe has shifted. Perhaps now another can take hold. I hope you enjoyed this uh, audio essay. Um, This is just a reading of, of... an essay that I had been working on for a while and finally published just this week over at postevangelicalpost.com. If you do want to support my work, you can do so at postevangelicalpost.com slash subscribe. You can subscribe for $5 a month and get ad-free podcast feeds. I am currently in my own sort of uh, period of rest and thinking and planning how I will be publishing both this podcast as well as well as the things that I post over at um, at the website Um, I did do some experimentation in 2022 with regard to uh, some shorter uh, podcasts for my direct supporters uh, called pep talk Um, you know maybe doing some of that I'll have some more information shortly uh, but we'll be taking the next week or so off to continue to uh, dream up what next year will look like. It definitely includes further revisions to my book and further work here on the podcast and on the website and maybe somehow something like YouTube or something else. 
I am being sensitive to the sort of vibe shift that I've talked about here. And I am trying to think of ways that I can do that without burning out, without overcommitting myself, without overpromising and underdelivering. Um, but I always appreciate anyone who listens to this show, anyone who reaches out, whether it's from something I've written or from an interview that I have had on the show or Powers and Principalities. And I encourage you to, um, you know, let me know what you think. And I look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you in 2023.